Uh, my name is Ali Ansari from, uh, where am I from? From the University of St Andrews. Gives me great pleasure to welcome our keynote speaker today, Professor Gary Sick from Columbia, New York. Um, his biography is uh, there in front of you, but I'll pick out a few choice uh, items. As most of you are aware, he was National Security Advisor during um, the Ford, Carter and Reagan administrations with special responsibilities uh, for Iran, and then uh, following a distinguished period in public service, he then moved, he glided effortlessly into academe, uh, where he's been uh, teaching at Columbia University um, since, well, since the 1980s, I would guess, is that 81. 81. 81. Off and on. Uh, and I have to say, it gives me particular pleasure uh, to be chairing this session. Uh, I've known Gary now, I think, for, I'm going to give away how long I've known him, about 10, 15 years or so. I have to say I found him to be generous to a fault and, uh, and a great supporter of both Middle Eastern studies and uh, uh, Iranian studies, betraying all the best qualities of the profession, I should say, and one that I think uh, we should do best to emulate. Now, uh, he's going to talk to us today on the subject of, and I'm just going to get the title, National Security Regional Stability, Prospects for Arab-Iranian Conflict and Cooperation. So without further ado, may I ask you to welcome <coughs> Professor Gary Sir. Thank you all very much. I am going to sit down and I hope that you can hear me properly. Uh, I, first of all, want to really thank the uh, conveners of the, uh, of, from LSE and, and others who have put this together. For me, it's a, a genuine pleasure to be here. Uh, I always like coming to London and this has been a particularly interesting visit and is going to get even more interesting. We're going off to visit other parts of, of England this time. My wife is here with me. Um, I also <laughs> also want to uh, thank um, all of you for staying to the bitter end. Um, that was very nice of you. And I um, am going to basically talk about what Ali said I was going to talk about. Uh, but I have to start by saying that in order really to discuss security in the Persian Gulf, uh, you really can't restrict the the discussion to Iran and the Arabs, that in fact there is at least one other player um, and several other players that have to be included, and I think two in particular that can't be ignored are Israel and the United States. There are other players as well. I think Turkey is a, becoming a significant player. Um, but I think in, the United States has become a Gulf state um, in recent years, and that they act both as a, an intermediary in some respects, but also if you read the WikiLeaks cables, you find that, uh, among other things, uh, that other to the, the astonishment of everybody that the, the American diplomats can actually write and read and they talk to people and they're really pretty <laughs> remarkably good. Uh, which came as a huge surprise to some people. I didn't find that such a shock. I, I was at Columbia the other day. <clears throat> we were having a, a panel of some sort, and a, a Frenchman uh, was uh, participating in the panel, a French diplomat, and he said, you know, I just wish we could have our WikiLeaks. He said, he said the, the French diplomats are really very good, too, and I wish you could. <laughs> and nobody pays any attention to us. So people are paying attention to uh, some of the American diplomats, at least, as a result. Um, but the, so they, the Americans act, if nothing else, 
uh, I think, as a shoulder to cry on for so many of the Arab Gulf states who uh, have complaints about Iran and fears. And, and, uh, and so the United States plays a, a bit of a role of a nanny in that process. But it's also a player itself. And so uh, with that little bit of uh, introduction, to just to make it clear where I'm coming from, uh, let me take a quick snapshot of what I see as the sort of geopolitical situation in the Gulf right now. And it may be one that, uh, in the Middle East generally, that may have some surprising elements. I, I do see the Middle East politics emerging, at least until fairly recently, as a polar rivalry between Israel on one hand and uh, Iran on the other. And that's rather remarkable when you stop and think about it. These are two countries that don't speak Arabic, that uh, are not Arab in themselves, are not Sunni Muslim, uh, and are considered to be outsiders or interlopers in, in the region. And yet, they have been driving the agenda of what happens in, in the region. And I think a lot of the Arabs have felt left out of that process, that this was something that was resented, the fact that they didn't weren't able to get their two cents in. The other thing that I think is absolutely critical is that um, when we look at the so-called growth of Iran in terms of its power uh, and influence in the region, you really have to stop and remind yourself that the reason that happened was the United States. We, in 1981, went into Afghanistan and removed the Taliban, which was Iran's worst enemy to the east, and then before that was done, turned around and invaded Iraq, uh, overthrew Saddam Hussein, who was Iran's worst enemy to the west, and who had fought them for eight years uh, running. And at the end of the game, Iran, which had not lifted a finger in this process, was left in a dominant position. It had no natural enemies. Its power was dramatically increased. And, you know, I've, uh, my Iranian friends, I have, they sometimes said to me, you know, we really appreciate this. We're not quite sure why you did this, but it's been very nice, and uh, thank you very much. Uh, but they usually don't say that publicly. Um, I have also talked to a number of Arabs who take a very different view of it, and they say, that this really couldn't have just happened by accident, uh, that you had to have had some idea of what you were doing when you went about this process. That it wasn't just a fit of absent-mindedness one day that you suddenly turned Iran into the principal, the, the largest and most powerful state in the region. And they remember quite well the fact that the United States had a relationship with the Shah of Iran uh, in not that far distant past. It doesn't even take that long a memory to, to remember those days. <clears throat> and I was told specifically by a foreign minister of one of the major uh, Arab countries that um, they suspected that we had the same thing in mind again, that basically we were going to go back to a new relationship with Iran. Now, to American ears, um, and I expect to many others, that sounds ridiculous, uh, you know, that this is not exactly what the United States had in mind. But on the other hand, when Obama came in and started talking about engagement with Iran, 
all of those signal lights began flashing that, aha, what does he really have in mind? First they make Iran into the most powerful state in the region, and now they're talking about engaging with them. What does that mean? And I think there's been a great deal of fear, I think mostly unjustified, but nevertheless uh, a fear about this. Um, I'm not going to dwell very much. Uh, a lot of people talk about the Iranian threat. Uh, we're talking about security and all here. Uh, I don't think for this crowd I, I need to go into a lot of detail, but the, the reality is that Iran is a middle-level power with a what I would regard as a largely unpopular and dysfunctional government headed by a firebrand populist president with limited powers. Their, Iran's gross domestic product is about the same as the state of Florida in the United States. And it is, you know, the it is not a dominant world power, much as Iran would like to be, and often as much as Iranian diplomats think of themselves as being sort of the superpowers of, uh, and taking a new place in the world, the reality is that they're not, and that they're probably not going to be either. Um, on the defense side, uh, Iran's annual defense expenditures total around $19, $20 billion a year. That's 2.5% of their GDP. That's less than half of Saudi Arabia and roughly equivalent to about three months of U.S. operations in Iraq. <laughs> That's their whole defense budget. So this is the great threat to everybody in the world. Now, it doesn't mean, and I guess we also have to point out that most of Iran's expenditures are on defensive equipment, they, uh, air, such as air defense in particular, but they don't have any heavy lift, they have no heavy armor, they have no long-range strike aircraft, no naval amphibious units. They fought eight years against their neighbor Iraq and uh, were losing at the end of that eight years. They haven't invaded anybody other than fighting back against Iraq for the last 200 years. That's not to say that there's no threat. Uh, even relatively weak and penurious states can be dangerous. And all we have to do is look at Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, to understand that. And clearly Iran has very significant asymmetric military warfare capabilities. They can operate through terrorism, they can operate through proxies, and I think increasingly, though we tend to forget about it uh, in our excitement about things like Stuxnet and the, and the efforts to interfere uh, with the internet uh, through into Iran's nuclear system, we forget that Iran also has the capability to do that uh, in reverse, and in many cases without fingerprints. And I think we may not have seen the end of this story. Um, I can't predict where it's going to go, but I think we might have thought more about that at the beginning of this game. Uh, later on, uh, we may have to think about it again. All I really want to do is add a degree of perspective to what, go, what it passes as the you know, very palpable fear that exists in the Gulf, in the Middle East, among many other states, and for that matter, in my own country, um, where uh, you know, hysterical, there's a rather hysterical post in the uh, editorial in the Washington Post just this morning about how basically, you know, Iran's nuclear power is about to take over, and you know, it's it's uh, it's designed to scare everybody, and it often succeeds. But the reality is that that it, we it it does require 
some degree of perspective. Um, I'm not going to dwell on the, the nuclear issue. It, it always gets put at the center of, of discussion. Uh, uh, you're certainly free. We're going to have a nice, uh, generous period for Q&A, and I encourage you if, you if you want to ask about details of the thing. Let me say just one thing uh, about the, the nuclear thing, and that is that Iran, you know, the fact that the United States apparently believed that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq at the time of the invasion, 2003. Uh, there's at least one other country in the world that shared that view, and that's Iran. They also thought that Saddam Hussein was getting weapons of mass destruction. And he, they also thought that if he got them, they knew where he would use them, and it wouldn't be on the United States or Israel. They, Iran would come first and that that's what he always had, that's what Saddam had in mind. And the fact that after the U.S. invasion, which Iran didn't try to stop at all, um, and after Saddam fell and after it was revealed that they didn't have weapons of mass destruction, they didn't have nuclear weapons, Iran, according to U.S. intelligence, ceased its experimentation. Iran says they were never experimenting with weapons, uh, I don't believe that. I think they probably were experimenting with weapons. They were trying to prepare in case Saddam did something that they would have an answer to that. And the fact that in 2003 they were determined to have stopped doing what I think were essentially tabletop experiments and, and planning about how you would create a, you know, drawings of a, uh, a reentry weapon and things like that. They, they quit that in 2003, and I think we have very good evidence they quit it. And you can argue that they did it because they were so terrified of the United States next door that they, uh, that they decided to stop. Or you could say that the threat that they had perceived from Saddam Hussein was clearly no longer there, and they no longer needed that. And either way, or a combination of both, but that was when they, they, uh, they stopped. But the fact that they took that threat very seriously and I think began preparing for it is uh, evidence that they could do it again. And I think in that sense it shouldn't be uh, rejected. Um, we do know now, um, and there are many people here who are more expert than I, that the Shah also had a uh, nuclear strategy and we are now told that what he wanted to create was what he called a surge capability. And by that, he meant a breakout capability, that they would have sufficient nuclear capability that if and when they felt threatened, they had one of two choices. They could either, through ambiguity, convince people that, to take them seriously, or by actually going ahead and building a nuclear weapon uh, in a relatively short period of time. There are a number of countries in the world that have that capability already. The number one case, of course, being Japan. Uh, my friends say that, um, who know about these things, said that, um, that Japan, if they decided they needed a nuclear weapon, it would take them a long weekend to, to produce it. Uh, I think Iran was probably aiming at more like three to six months uh, capability, uh, and I think that's what the Shah had in mind. And it's not so strange that, in fact, I believe that the Islamic Republic has, in fact, adopted, many, as they have in many other ways, the policies of the Shah, and that they are looking for, one, ambiguity, 
so that everybody knows that they might be able to produce a nuclear weapon, so they have to be taken seriously. And two, if they are seriously threatened and it looks as if the, you know, that it's an existential question, they will and can, in fact, go for a nuclear weapon. So it's really a matter of, of intent, and we don't know what countries will decide to do. Um, the, uh, Iran has lied about its nuclear uh, activities in the past. In fact, I had people, we had a conference at Columbia many years ago, actually, um, and had a long session in which Iranian officials on the nuclear side came and talked to a group of American officials. Uh, we didn't publicize it very much, but it was an interesting day, and we had a good discussion. But in the course of that day, I was told by one of the Iranian representatives that uh, Iran had no interest in a full nuclear fuel cycle. Well, at the time he said that, Iran was already starting to build a full nuclear fuel cycle. And uh, although the fact that he lied to me is very minor, uh, as such things go, uh, uh, I remembered it, which, uh, and to me, that was, was significant. But still, I think the object of the game, if you're going to look at why are they doing these things, is essentially to acquire a breakout capability and leverage. I'm also not going to dwell on the whole sanctions issue. Uh, I think this has been done, except to note that the sanctions that have been put on Iran, at least uh, on the nuclear side by the UN Security Council, have all been premised on the idea of zero enrichment, that that was the object of the game. That was never going to happen. The people who were doing it should have known that it was never going to happen, and it meant that from the very start, you had nothing to negotiate about. If you were starting out with the idea you were going to make Iran go back, destroy all of its centrifuges, do away with all of its low enriched uranium, and go back to, in effect, a non-nuclear position, you were living in another world. And yet that is technically the position of the countries that have been negotiating with Iran. And I simply can't express, you know, my disappointment more than I am to say that I think we have wasted a good decade in looking at this issue where we could have, in fact, been negotiating something valuable, like limitations on Iran's nuclear development in return for some of the sanctions that we have put on. That would have been a, a, a real discussion. And I think that there are very solid evidence that Iran might well have been willing to play that game, to actually provide assurances, let us have access to their um, production capabilities, to their scientists and all, in return for something on our side. But we insisted on zero enrichment. And I think that has harmed us far, far more than it's helped us. And of course, what we've gotten after all of the years of sanctions, starting in 1995 with the United States to this day, is that we, when we started, Iran had zero centrifuges and no enriched uranium. Today, they have something like 8,000 centrifuges and enough enriched uranium to build a couple of nuclear weapons. And I don't regard that as a success story. There's something wrong with a process in which year after year after year we go through the same process aiming at the same objective and it's going exactly the opposite direction of what we're trying to do and we don't seem to notice. Anyway, um, 
Are Arab fears actually justified, the Arab fears of Iran? Well, the people who've already spoken here have talked about the historical side. Basically, the Persian-Arab distrust uh, is very old, and uh, it wasn't just invented yesterday, and the, there's a historic rivalry that goes on there. And then, of course, there is the Shia element laid on top of that as another layer. And I think at the end, to summarize what was discussed in several of the previous panels, is that there's a sort of flat statement now that says, you know, Persians are bad. Persians are Shia, so Shia are bad. And that is basically all you really need to know about the current political situation regarding the Arabs. Um, I think also the fact that I mentioned earlier that the United States was the ally of the Shah, and uh, now people wonder if that is likely to be something that could happen again. Um, I do want to address very briefly, since the question of Iran and Iraq has come up, and people have suggested just casually in passing, you know, that that uh, Iraq is one way or another sort of under the thumb of, of Iran. Clearly, Iran today has far more influence in Iraq than it did under Saddam Hussein. Now, there's just no two ways about that. It's true, and the United States uh, helped install a Shia government there, which is certainly more uh, amenable to uh, Iranian influence and at least to discussing with Iran. But, you know, I had a wonderful opportunity a couple of years ago to spend a couple of days in Najaf. We sat down and talked to a series of chief ayatollahs. Uh, we didn't talk to Sistani, but we talked to just about all the others, and we also spent the better part of a day, a half a day, just meeting with members of the Hausa, the religious establishment. And at least to my point, to my view, where we came out of that was the relationship between those, those are the, we're now we're talking Shia religious leaders in Iraq, some of whom were born in Iran and who have close relationships with people in Iran and with Qom. Their, the way they characterized their relationship between Najaf and Qom was friendly competition, and I think that's probably a pretty accurate description. And secondly, they said, you know, that they, it was just blindingly evident that these people did not like what Iran was doing in terms of turning Islam into a form of government, that this is simply not the way they wanted to proceed. And I just, I mean, I, I didn't have to go talk to Sunni politicians in Iraq to get the idea. So people suggested earlier today that if uh, Iran pushed too hard, there might be pushback from Iraq. I think there's pushback already, and I think it's going on, and that basically Iran is not going to dominate Iraq. It is, in fact, got a real problem with Iraq if it is true, as it turns out that it might be, that Iraq suddenly goes into full production mode in terms of its oil. Iran is not, as it was said earlier, is not going to be able to play the game that somehow they're the dominant power. They are likely to end up being the subordinate power in this whole thing. The Iraqis have never agreed even to discuss the division of the Shat al-Arab. Uh, where's that line? Where's the border that was fought about? Uh, 
they've never gotten around to even discussing that. That can't be an oversight. If they're really under the thumb of Iran, why haven't they worked out an arrangement which is basically beneficial to Iran, which would be a very easy thing to do, and so forth. Uh, Iran is going to have influence in Iraq, in Baghdad, clearly. But is it going to be giving orders to Iran? I think the answer is really no. And that basically, again, if we had, if, if we were pursuing a really wise diplomacy, what we would be focusing on is not trying to build a uh, covert wall between Iran and Iraq to keep the bad guys out. We would be really focusing on the differences between Iran and Iraq and trying to basically make friends with and provide support for, directly or indirectly, the people, the, the Iraqi nationalists, basically, in Iraq, who are going to be the people providing the pushback against any Iranian attempts to take over. Um, I do think, however, that the long history that has led up to this point in terms of Iran and Iraq and, and uh, particularly uh, the fears of Iran in the Gulf. And I do not dismiss them. I think that, that uh, we overhype it, but the fears are there and it's very real. And I just, the same way that Israel's national fear of another Holocaust, which dominates so much of their thinking and so much of their strategic behavior, that can't be removed. I mean, that's, that may go away in time, but it's going to take a long time for that to, to subside. In the same sense, I think Arab fears of Iran cannot really be put to rest entirely. So it's something that the world is going to have to live with, that this is, this is a fact of life. There's going to be fear and distrust. I do think, and the Arab Spring has made it worse rather than better, that uh, I agree with uh, Katrina that uh, I think the um, that Iran is probably a loser in this in the Arab Spring. That as this thing shakes out, they're not going to have very much to pat themselves on the back about. Uh, in fact, as it is now, they're trying to explain away a lot of the things that are going on and doing it not very successfully, actually. Um, but in in a sense, we with the Arab Spring. The, the long and, and the other points of view, in a way, we have a sort of perfect storm. Um, and I, there's sort of three elements of this. Um, one is the, the Arab Spring, which nobody has any control over, basically, and it's going to go its own way, but it opens up all kinds of new possibilities. Uh, another aspect of it is this intense fear, hatred, uh, distrust between the Arabs and the Persians, which I think is also not going to go away and is going to fester, and that is likely to get worse before it gets better. And the third is really uh, the fact of what's going on in Iran. And let me spend a few minutes uh, just summarizing very briefly and in cartoon fashion, actually, uh, what I see is happening in Iran. And uh, since not everybody here, in fact, maybe nobody, will completely agree with what I have to say. I figure that you'll take care of it in, in the question and answer session. I'm looking forward to a very lively uh, Q&A. Um, but I do think that we are right now facing probably the most complex analytical environment in Iran 
that we have seen really since the early days of the revolution, that things are in flux in a way. A new order is actually being created, whether we know it or not and whether the leadership in Iran wants it or not. Uh, I think the revolution is basically over and that the question now is what replaces it. And it could take a very long time and what replaces it could be something that looks sort of like a revolutionary government, but maybe is not. And I think all the players are, are in motion. Um, I'm not going to, I wanted to really take on Ali's questions this morning about nationalism versus Islam and, and the like, but I'm going to pass in the interest of time and be happy to, to come back to that. Uh, I would say, Nahid, however, that I agree with you very much that this uh, sense of image versus reality is, is real and that basically the government, to demonstrate how powerful it is, can say absolutely anything and can actually say the reverse of the truth and by saying so, instead of making them weaker, at least in the short term, they pretend that this is, this, this is making them stronger. It actually is not making them stronger. I think that a lot of people in Iran are absolutely aware that the emperor no longer has any clothes, that basically this regime has not been a great success economically, politically, militarily, uh, that the image that it held out of a sort of perfect Islamic government is really, uh, a, you know, is now a figment of people's imagination. The idea that the regime now has to resort increasingly to uh, brutal uh, repressive tactics and constantly exaggerated claims. I mean, the fact that, that Ali Khamenei is the representative of God on earth which is the current dogma. That is the doctrine. You didn't have to say that about Khomeini. There, it wasn't necessary. It's only as things begin to fall apart that you have to make these exaggerated claims that I think are ridiculous and actually self-defeating in the end. But in the short term, by claiming this, you do create a situation where you can attack anybody who disagrees with you on the ground that they're offending God. And, you know, I think most of the people, at least the people who are doing the offending, and most of the people who are watching the results of that don't believe that they were offending God. They think they were doing what people are doing in Egypt and in Tunisia and in Syria and other places. That is expressing their own disagreement with their government. And that is a, uh, that creates a problem. I, let me end with a few, um, let me make just one more statement uh, since I'm unburdening myself. Uh, uh, and that is that I really do believe that in the process of this evolution that we've seen in the Iranian revolution, that increasingly I think the Revolutionary Guards are emerging as the, as the dominant power. And it is really remarkable to think how far they've come in not a very long period of time. They, in effect, because of the security situation, they largely determine who has access to Khamenei, to the supreme leader. They dominate the intelligence service. They are the intelligence service in many cases. They dominate the security services. They are the security services. They dominate the judiciary, and they can call, at, call it as they see fit. They dominate key elements of the economy, and they are also to, I think, are the irony of the West, 
major beneficiaries of the sanctions regime uh, because they dominate the smuggling. And so when basically people buy things at a high price in Tehran, probably the Revolutionary Guard has had their cut uh, along the way someplace. And in fact, the President, Ahmadinejad himself, said the same thing just a few days ago and was bitterly attacked for doing so. They haven't accused him of warring against God yet, but that is probably coming. Um, let me just end then with some major analytical questions that I think are, uh, are out there. First, all of these in, in terms of the security of the region. Is Iran rushing to get a bomb? I think you know my position on that. Uh, but I think you should also be aware, and I am, that what has, for instance, the, the, the position that I just outlined, that Iran is looking for a breakout capability but not actually to build a nuclear weapon, that they want the kind of, they want basically a, a, an ambiguous position that is less than what Israel has, for instance, with an actual existing arsenal, um, but that they, that can change. And if, in fact, the Revolutionary Guard begins to take an increasing role in the actual decision-making in Iran, I think just as in Pakistan and in other countries that found themselves in, in India, where you started down the road and then the people who were, had the closest access to the thing began to develop a bureaucracy of their own and pushing further and further and further. I think the same thing can happen in Iran. So from my point of view, time is wasting. We have, in fact, dithered away 10 years of time when we could have, in fact, cut a very good deal with Iran. I think we should try to cut a deal with Iran in the near future. And I, for one, was absolutely uh, uh, heartbroken when the United States reacted to the Turkish-Brazilian uh, uh, offer uh, earlier this year. I thought it was just humiliating uh, in every way that we, we responded the way we did because it got in the way of our sanctions regime. We wanted to do sanctions, and we're getting very good at doing sanctions. But we're not very good at doing anything else. And sanctions should be a lever. They should be a negotiating point that gets you something. And instead, we do it for its own sake. And people say we don't, but we do. And we let it get in the way of actual negotiations that might, in fact, accomplish something. And I personally regret that very much. Um, let me just. Actually, I think, let me just skip to a, a couple of words at the end, and then we'll go into Q&A. Um, I did want to make one point, and that is that people need to be reminded that the U.S. presence in the Gulf um, is a new thing. Um, we had virtually no presence in the Gulf until about 1989, and um, started a little bit in the mid-80s, but basically it was only really Saddam's invasion of Kuwait that really brought the U.S. in in a major way. And um, if you want to know why the United States has a presence of the size that it has in the, in the Gulf, it's just one man to blame. It's not Ali Khamenei, it's Saddam Hussein. He, by multiple invasions and stirring up the, the Gulf the way he did, 
drew the Americans in, and now the question is, that was, can we get out, having done that? And my prediction is that we're not going to turn around and run away uh, in the near future, but I really think it's going to be, given the economic situation, I think it's going to be almost impossible for any, any U.S. administration, Democratic or Republican, to maintain the level of, of military activity that we've had in the last 10 years, uh, 15 years. I just don't think it can be done. I don't think there's going to be any reason for it to be done. Up until now, we have not really had a national dialogue in the United States about whether we're actually getting any security for all this trillions of dollars that we're spending in, in the, the Gulf region. And I think that debate is about to start. There are people now blogging on this. There are articles in the newspaper. Things are, people are actually, you know, Ron Paul, um, to his credit, um, one of the uh, Republican nominees for, or Republican candidates, uh, in the last debate they had very seriously asked the question of, you know, what are we doing there? What's, what's, the, what's the advantage of this? Are we getting our money's worth? That, if that question can start being asked at that level, suddenly we're going to begin to see a debate. And I do think that anybody who's planning on the fact, whether that's Arabs or others, that the United States is just going to be there for the next 20 years the way it has the last 20 years, is probably going to be wrong. So I think we do have a potential perfect storm here. We have fundamental security shifts in the United States and unpredictable political changes going on in Iran. And the Arabs and Israelis looking on fearfully and with enormous skepticism. And I don't think there are any magic bullets, but that doesn't mean that the international community and national diplomacy are without resources. However, the one quality that is needed, or most needed, is patience. And that's probably the one thing that is not available to a U.S. administration facing a series of elections, or for that matter, an Israel going through its own turmoil, or certainly an Arab world finding its way into an uncertain future where most of the previous assumptions about alliances and security structures are in flux. My last word is that the greatest danger of all is being sucked into a military confrontation in the interests of some kind of short-term solution. And um, if any of you have solutions to that problem, let me know. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, before we uh, open the floor to questions, there's a couple of points that I should have mentioned actually before we started, and Bob was giving me a rather evil glare because he obviously told me to say this, and I probably forgot, which just goes to show that age catches up with all of us. Uh, <clears throat> one is that just to remind you all, but I think you know anyway, that the whole uh, uh, workshop conference is being recorded and there will be a podcast available in due course, and there will also be a report, a written report available in due course. We don't know when, but it will be available, won't it? Thank you, Bob. Right, uh, without further ado, I want to take questions in batches of three, if I may. We'll start uh, here with Roger. Roger Hardy, you... You pretty much said what you think about the Obama administration's approach to Iran and sanctions. Not the Obama. Clinton, Bush, Obama. What would you say about <laughs> the Obama administration's approach to the Arab Spring? I'll just take, let me just take two more and then... Does that mean? Or would you want to... Go ahead. No? Fine, fine, fine. Uh, Neil. Yeah, um, Neil Parker. Um, 
have to say thank you very much for the presentation. Um, I just wondered, you talked about the perfect storm. Um, you also talked about uh, a closing door in terms of the external <coughs> situation and the growth of the power um, of the revolutionary guards. Um, that internal constraint has obviously been there before. Certainly, talked about in terms of the starting period, in terms of making concessions that are not in power to actually make, for example, has arguably frustrated the efforts of the Track 2 agreements, for example, in terms of nuclear compromise. Um, could it be the sense that now, or even with a more empowered revolutionary guard, is the time for a parallel with um, Beijing, if you like, in Israel, Nixon in the United States and China, to, to act in a position of strength? Or are we assuming the revolutionary guard cannot even enter that kind of mindset of compromise? Just to throw one other element, if I can, very quickly. Very quickly. Um, psychological aspect of this, we mentioned the Arab perceptions, but the planned major drawdown in Iraq, uh, can you imagine the effect of being prepared to concede a compromise managed of an Iranian nuclear enrichment process? Would that not set even more fears and paranoias on the Arab side of the Gulf? Or do we just think in a sense they have nowhere else to go in terms of strategic partners? No, Yes, and Nazi Nassar, do you think the rise of uh, Turkish influence in the region is at the expense of Israeli and Russian influence uh, in the area? And how will this affect uh, U.S. strategy in the Middle East? Will it still, I mean, will it continue to uh, emphasize and um, be dependent on Israeli strategy? Or will it become more and more uh, geared towards taking Turkish Okay, we should take those now and then I'll... Yeah, okay. Um, the, um, I can't even read my own writing. Uh, uh, Roger, your question was um, about... Obama and the... Obama and the, Right. Um, clearly, uh, the United States has taken some real hits in the course of this. Uh, like most Middle East experts, um, including myself, and I think many, many of the people in this room, though we're all beginning to deny it, uh, we didn't really see this coming. Um, and we, I think there was a general assumption that a situation that had gone on for 30 or 40 years was, you know, you knew it was gonna change someday but not on your watch. It was always going to be down the line. You'd seen people try. You'd seen things come and go. You saw these dynasties coming up so that Assad turns it over to his son and Mubarak is ready to turn it over to his son and, and uh, Saleh is even getting ready to turn it over to his son. Uh, you had all of these, so th these things, and certainly uh, Gaddafi was getting ready to turn it over to his son, uh, that you see these dynastic uh, relations uh, coming up and that yeah, it was going to take a while for this to uh, to come to an end. And then when it started unraveling very suddenly, I think a lot of people were taken by surprise. Um, Obama is walking a very tight rope in this process. On one hand, he can't afford, especially in an election season, and it's always an election season, uh, he can't afford to be accused by the opposition of being soft on anybody uh, and, and on security because uh, that's where you're, the Democrats usually get beaten up on, on the fact that they don't know how to manage security. And uh, 
I think that's less so after George Bush, but nevertheless, that is where it has sort of come out. So I think he proceeded with a good deal of caution. He didn't want to jump in and say, oh, hooray, uh, you know, democracy is a good thing. We're on your side, and, and goodbye, Mubarak, and goodbye, uh, you know, uh, Tunisia, and goodbye this, and goodbye that. But on the other hand, as he watched things emerge and saw that it, it, you could read the writing on the wall, you could see which way things were going, uh, he acknowledged reality and began to make the most of it. And I personally think that's about as good as you could have done under the circumstances. That doesn't mean that it takes, that's only the immediate moment. That's right now, I think that was fine. But right now is not what we really need to worry about. We need to think about the next five years, the next 10 years, and begin to think about where the Middle East comes out of all of this. And in reality, you know, nobody knows. Really nobody knows. And so I think there's going to be a good bit of sort of pragmatic watching and waiting uh, and hopefully you know picking up on points that look as if they're strong points uh, and try to minimize things that look as if they're going to be harmful but I think uh, it's going to be a, a good bit of sort of make it up as you go along and that's probably pretty much what every country in the world is doing right now and I don't think the US is really any different uh, on that regard um, with regard to, if I understood, Neil, your, your question about uh, with the Revolutionary Guards, you know, is it, can you negotiate with these people? Is that, in effect, it, that if they are the, the dominant power, is there a chance of really negotiation, or what would it take? Um, my answer is, yeah, I think it probably is. And, um, in fact, if we see, let me give you a a scenario, which, uh, since I've already stuck my neck out too far. Anyway, uh, and I've got, you know, uh, I don't speak for anybody except myself, and so nobody has to pay any attention to what I say. Um, let's just imagine a situation in which the Supreme Leader finds that he just can't get along with Ahmadinejad anymore, that it's just he can't accept this behavior that, that is going on, and and what does he do about it? Well, one thing he could do about it is declare a state of national emergency, impose uh, spatial uh, emergency laws. We've heard that phrase in other countries, other times. And temporarily turn over the leadership to uh, some member of the Revolutionary Guards uh, to basically caretake the situation until you could uh, move on to something else. And possibly you never really move on to something else. So it's not, to my mind, completely beyond the realm of possibility that you could have a Revolutionary Guard type, either in or out of uniform, actually uh, serving as the caretaker for, for running the government. Um, I think that um, I even have a candidate. I think uh, I think Qasem Soleimani would be an ideal person. He knows the foreign policy. He's he's dealt with the Americans directly and indirectly. He's run their foreign policy in Iraq, and if nothing else, I offer the scenario not because I particularly think it's going to happen, but I don't think it's impossible. And if it did happen or something like that. I think it would actually get the attention of people in Washington in a way that perhaps the sort of incrementalism that we've seen going on actually wouldn't. 
And there's some real negotiating to be done here. I could, in five minutes, lay out a scenario in which the United States made an offer to Iran that it really couldn't refuse, not at the point of a gun, but rather to say publicly, look, what we're worried about, Iran, is we want to clear up this whole business of the nuclear side. We want to get, uh, we want to have monitoring and in careful inspection. We want to be able to meet with your scientists. We want to be able to inspect your production facilities. And if you're willing to do that, to move in that direction, we are prepared to lift the sanctions on oil and let uh, new investment actually come pouring into the country. We're prepared to cut off, to stop the harassment through the banks and stopping the trade going on and so forth. And you say that publicly. And then if the regime says, oh no, 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 we're not prepared to do that, they've got a problem on their hands because their own people are going to say, what? Why would you turn down that kind of an opportunity? And that's been lying there untouched for almost 10 years we had this same capability so in my view a shock of some sort might in fact make somebody start thinking about actually seriously negotiating and that would from my point of view be a great advantage um, I'm not going to talk about I'm not going to try to speculate on managing an Iranian nuclear development because one I don't think it's going to happen to at least not in the very near future. If it happens, it'll be because of significant changes between now and, and the time that it happens. And then we're just going to have to deal with it as it comes. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't think it's a very fruitful line of, of approach. Um, um, Nazanin, the, the, um, the Turkish element, uh, I personally share the view that uh, that the Turkish model is actually a very interesting and useful one. I've been really disappointed with the United States and the Europeans and others for what seems to be a sort of, um, you know, uh, willful blindness in seeing that. There's people talking about it, but nobody's following up or doing anything about it in the sense of actually opening up and taking advantage of the opportunities that Turkey is presenting to us. And I mentioned one in particular, but there are other possibilities that are more subtle and long-term. And so from my point of view, we should be doing more of that. I'm not going to predict it because thus far we have shown no signs that we're really willing to think about it. We seem to think, including the people in the Obama administration, that if we're not doing it, if we're not coming up with the idea ourselves, if we're not proposing it ourselves and carrying it out ourselves, it's not worth doing and that we're not going to trust anybody else. And I think at a time when I think multilateral diplomacy is really the way things, that's where things are going, I think that we're going to have to get over that. I would have thought the Obama administration would have been open to that. They haven't proved to be so far. Yeah. By themselves, considering their own regional interest, uh, by considering the matter more, considering other players' interest, would the U.S. allow that to happen? I mean, you mentioned clearly about it from uh, some facts in the past, but the U.S. has interest in developing you know, the minimum of the oil. I mean, the Saddam was the reason for that, but it was a policy of the U.S. to have an uninterrupted supply of oil, reasonable prices to secure Israel. 
the US interest about, uh, about Iran and the security of the Gulf tonight. There's an issue with the nuclear, not with the Gulf countries. Because the Gulf countries might be worried about the, the terrorist activities, asymmetrical war. Nuclear is an issue for Israel, not for the Gulf countries. Mm. And, you know, so, and also, as Robert Reagan said in, in his book, you know, we, uh, you know, they wanted to have business in the Gulf, in the region, so they wanted to control that. Paradise and power, that's important, you know, declared clearly, you know, very bluntly and beautifully, you know, the US policy. Uh, so I think we have two Cold War also there in the Gulf. One Cold War between Iran and the United States, which are played in the UAE, for example, with pressure on Dubai, and the other side playing different games with Abu Dhabi and other places, <coughs> with the Gulf countries. Uh, the second Cold War between Iran and Saudi Arabia. It started in Bahrain, then in Yemen, moved to Yemen. So it has been a ground which is, you know, which, which is not under the control of the players. And uh, it's not purely ethnic, it's not purely sectarian, it's not purely foreign factors, but there are multiple factors, and it will stay, I, I agree with you, the future is uncertain, especially with the U.S. involvement, to be much more uncertain. Yes, uh, can I just go back to the question of sanctions? You uh, question the uh, objectives of the sanctions, in the sense that, uh, in your interpretation, uh, zero tolerance for uh, uh, processing uh, by Iran was the wrong uh, threshold to set. Uh, I actually think the objectives, the real objectives behind sanctions, were far more, far vaguer than than that. Uh, and there is a circumstantial evidence supporting the rationale for sanctions, which cover a wider range of objectives that mentioned. Than, than, than just Iran's nuclear capability. But I, what I want to question is actually the relevance for effectiveness or effect, efficacy of sanctions as an instrument, even if the objectives were clear whether they are what uh, you think they are. Uh, sanctions, effect, economic sanctions for that, I mean, effectively work as collective punishment. And they impose very, very harsh uh, repercussions on the population, not just the regime. We know this uh, from Iraq. And we also know that the economic sanctions fell uh, rather abjectly in uh, bringing about a political change on the part of the target government. Uh, and as you said very uh, eloquently, it certainly doesn't seem to have worked in the case of Iran either. And of course, it's very clear that this fight will, because of heterogeneity of the political seen in Iran, there doesn't seem to be any popular support from within Iran for sanctions either. That, that means that even the opposition uh, is aghast at the consequences on the population. I mention this because I think the propensity to repeat a mistake from Iraq to Iran now in Syria, uh, again we see really the desperation of the Western world in the media with what's going on in Syria, there is, we, we, we begin to see popularity of sanctions. <coughs> economic sanctions are being introduced right, right left and center without really asking a question as to whether these, these are going to be effective in bringing about the, the desired outcome. And, and I've been very, very skeptical. As I said, this is at best collective punishment and the expectation that you hurt the people i.e. the victims of a regime, so that then they get up and hurt the rulers. That's very, very simple Brian. Gary, um, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on a 
Lorenz Greeson offer to uh, trade full supervision uh, in return for lifting sanctions. Uh, and the second question I want to ask, which is a little bit more comical, is when will you be replacing Dennis Ross? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, th that's three. Shall I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, I wasn't responsible for putting Dennis in there, and I don't, <laughs> I don't fully understand why he was appointed to that position. Um, it's one of the aspects of Obama's uh, rule that I have found really perplexing because he came in, I think, genuinely dedicated to the idea of engaging with Iran mm -hmm. in a full-scale way, and then surrounded himself with people who were absolutely opposed to that policy, the, all of his experts, all of the people in the White House. And I can't explain that. I mean, I, I honestly don't know why he did that, but he did. And, you know, Dennis is very smart. He's very good. He has, you know, he has created real problems for the, for the Obama administration in terms of anything it wanted to do with Iran, but it was a self-inflicted wound. I mean, they did it themselves, and I don't see him going anyplace. So that's all I can say. Um, I really appreciate the question, you know, about what if Iran and the Arabs should get together uh, on their own. Um, in a way, the answer to that question should be so simple. You know, <laughs> if if Iran and the Arabs, in fact, could find a basis for agreeing with each other to create a security regime in the Gulf. What's not to like about that? I mean, that is the, the ideal. But uh, no, but my point is going to be, I think we probably wouldn't like it because we weren't doing it. And we would assume the same way that the Arabs assume that anything the United States does with Iran must have a hidden motive, and the same way that the Iranians assume that anything that we do with the Arabs has a maybe not so hidden motive, but some hidden motive. Uh, everybody is looking for uh, reasons, and I think that the other side of the coin, however, is that this is a genuine hypothetical, because getting the Arabs and the, and the Iranians mm -hmm. to, in fact, agree on some kind of a regime in the, in the Gulf, uh, just starting with the name, is going to be very, very hard to do. And so I don't, have, I don't hold out any hopes that they will succeed. On the other hand, I am very much aware of the fact that uh, countries constantly shoot themselves in the foot and the U.S. would be capable of doing that. In this case, I just don't think that's going to come into play. I think it's not really an issue. With regard to sanctions, I gave that very short shrift in, in my talk, and I could have had a whole speech uh, about just sanctions. And I, um, I, I agree with you that, in fact, the sanctions for instance, when the, uh, when the Clinton administration first imposed sanctions on Iran, on Iran's uh, oil production capacity in 1995 and 96, that wasn't about enrichment. It was about other things. It wasn't entirely clear what it was about, frankly. Uh, it was available to us. Uh, it was something that we could do. This was at the moment when Rafsanjani had, in fact, made an offer to Conoco for a billion-dollar contract to uh, work in the Gulf. 
And Conoco, after some long period of negotiation, accepted it. And the U.S. government was absolutely appalled to discover that this was going to punch a hole in what they saw as their containment wall around Iran, and so started imposing sanctions on Iran for actually wanting to work with an American company. Maybe you can explain that, but I have a very hard time with it. I, you know, I, but it wasn't about enrichment. I agree with you. I specifically did say, however, the, the ones adopted by the Security Council uh, against Iran had that aspect to them. But I think people do have different uh, views of what they expect sanctions, or what they would hope sanctions would call. Bottom line is, although nobody will say it, I suspect it was about regime change. That basically you hope you can bring pressure on this regime so that it will fall and you will have a better group to work with than, than you do now. That was never very likely. And as you said exactly, it never seems to work wherever we do it. Why are we doing it in Syria? Because we can. Uh, we can't think of anything else to do. We don't want to send troops. We don't, you know, but we, on the other hand, don't think we should just sit on our hands. So what do you do? You impose sanctions. And it's become so automatic. It is the answer to everything. And of course, it's the answer to nothing. Because in the end, it just, they're there, and then you can't unravel them after they're put in place. It causes, you know, distrust and, and so forth. It, 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 I, I think that it, I understand why people do it from a political perspective, but the track record is really very bad. Um, you might argue that, in fact, it did have some effect uh, getting Saddam Hussein to stop building nuclear weapons. Um, he didn't say that. And it wasn't until later that we found it out. But in fact, he may have responded to some of the, op of the uh, inspections and, and the sanctions uh, was, some, was a, a negative impact on, on what he decided to do. There was, a, there was uh, Brian had his part one of his question about the trade for supervision in return for the Yeah, I, first of all, um, the offer was unbelievably vague. I mean, the way it actually was phrased, it could have meant anything. And you really have two choices when you're faced with a, a, an offer of this sort that is extraordinarily vague. You can either say, you know, I don't know what they're talking about and go on with your business and forget about it. Or you can say, well, let's see what we can do with this. And they've given us a little bit of an opening here. Let's explore that a little bit. Up until now, all such offers, some much more, uh, act more, much less ambiguous than this, have been ignored, have been allowed to pass. Uh, I suspect that this one will be allowed to pass as well. But if I think the U.S. government at this point, or the, the EU, or the, the five plus one, whatever institution organization wanted to undertake it, say, okay, let's go back in. Or even if we had the, you know, the courage to tell the um, Turks, why don't you go talk to the Iranians again and find out what they mean by that? Is this a real offer? And if so, we might be willing to talk. You have an intermediary operating between the two. We have capabilities. We have things that can be done. The question is whether anybody's paying attention in Washington or has the will to actually do it. And up until now, the record has not been very good, I'm sorry to say. 
If, if I've, uh, by the way, if you've already seen me acknowledge you, don't worry, your name is down on the list, there's no need to. Um, I would just encourage you, uh, because of the shortage of time, uh, if you could keep your questions short-ish, just so we can get through. So the next on my list is Katrina. I accept that the uh, U.S. policy towards Iran has been a series of failed opportunities, whether or not. Uh, but I'm wondering if they really do have an interlocutor in Iran in the way you suggested <coughs> by the uh, Republican Guard itself. I haven't followed the nitty-gritty of the relationship and who's at fault at which point uh, for the breakdown of, of uh, of negotiation on the nuclear issue and other issues. But it seems to me that if one looks at the um, way foreign policy is made in Tehran, um, one is confronted with a situation where, okay, but on the one hand, none of the none of the single actors have an interest in pursuing an agreement. And even if those actors did, even if there was such an actor, because of the system, they will forever be unable to push it through. Okay. Because the system is against is against such an, it's a system that encourages paralysis, essentially, as opposed to uh, such a big initiative. What this would require to respond, let's say, to a coherent U.S. offer of a carrot, which is what you're saying should be done. Uh, Chris. You may have uh, partially responded to this already with your points on this, Ross, but I was wondering beyond the, sort of the general analytical fog in some of the domestic realities that you pointed out as uh, impeding Iran policy, do you actually see any major disagreements between bureaucracies on Iran policy land? Are there tensions there? Yeah, um, you, you kind of alluded to the events of the reform movement in Iran. I wonder if you could just kind of summarize what you think the your assessment of their effect has been whether you think they have a future of any kind and what you think the negotiations that you have suggested you would like to see will do to prospects of any sort of democratic opening So the question was really about sort of the green movement and, and uh, yes. And whether okay. Okay. Um, the um, Katrina, I, I completely agree um, that uh, there's a. I was being provocative, and I uh, basically focused on uh, a lot of things that the U.S. and the West have done wrong, and I think those are. I'm. I'm I don't retract any of that. What I didn't do was talk about all the failed opportunities from the Iranian side, the things that they could have done, things, and even if it's only just their general behavior, because every time things begin to tighten, every time something begins to emerge, um, actually, uh, I can't talk about the details, but I was, I was in close contact with a fairly senior Iranian at a time when the U.S. was actually beginning to put out some offers uh, to Iran. And Iran responded by doing something positive, and just it was all verbal. And then immediately, some unknown person or persons in Iran took a step 
that was disastrous, in that cast doubt on their reliability and everything else. Um, Iran's holier-than-thou approach to international politics and in the sense that they hold themselves out to be a, you know, the, the, you know, the, 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 the great power, the only one that is, you know, really right all the time, uh, and their grandiose uh, view of themselves. In that way, they share a lot with the United States. I mean, we have, <laughs> we have, we have a lot in common uh, in that way. But that may make things more difficult, in fact, because uh, you've got two, two parties who each think they're supreme and uh, that they're exceptional in every possible way, and it doesn't make for good negotiating tactics. Um, and I, you know, I toss that out because I could have listed a whole series of things that I think Iran did wrong, um, even if, if it's only in the way that the problem is, is prepared, how the ground is prepared. There's a lot, you, if you want to really go into positive negotiations with another party, you know, uh, sh calling them names weekly is not necessarily a good way to do it. And, you know, uh, you know Iran, you know, you have the weekly prayer meetings on Fridays, and, you know, nobody takes these too seriously. I mean, people get up and they make pronouncements and the like. But there is a set list of slogans that people chant when they do it. And it starts out with death to America, and it ends with death to America. And, you know, if you're really thinking about an opening, um, that seems like an unnecessary. Uh, you, could, you could bypass that, perhaps. You know, there's, so, no, I, I, and I, so I should have filled in the, the other side of the game. I think we tend to, the reason I focused where I did is that I think there's a tendency on the part of the West in general to sort of pat itself on the back and say, we're the good guys in this process. So I was trying to puncture that balloon a little bit. But I think it was exactly fair uh, the other way. I, I compare U.S.-Iran relations to a, a teeter-totter, a seesaw, which one side is up and the other side is down. And when the side that is up says, we don't need to talk, and the side that is down says, we don't dare talk, then the sides reverse. And you've got one side up and one side down. Mm -hmm. Getting to a point of equilibrium is really hard. And we've missed opportunities. There have been some along the way. Uh, Chris, um, are there major bureaucratic conflicts in the U.S. government about Iran policy? Um, I'm not in the U.S. government. And, um, you know, I try to follow it very carefully. I know there are people who disagree with each other uh, about where things are going. I know there are some people who are really quite sophisticated and knowledgeable about Iran um, at, at key points uh, throughout the system. Um, I do find just a, another similarity between the United States and Iran is that with regard to each other, uh, we don't have a foreign policy. We have a domestic policy. Uh, that's true in Iran. Uh, their policy toward the United States is determined by their domestic politics. The United States, our policy toward Iran is determined by our domestic politics. And so you can have all of these smart, capable people, knowledgeable with ideas and, uh, and the best of intentions, and clever and intelligent and good diplomats and, and people who know what they're doing. 
And the people who are doing the politics say, you know, we don't want to have anything to do with this because it's going to play back in a bad way. And so there are, but I don't think if the question you're asking is can you explain the failure of the United States to act because of a bureaucratic conflict, I think it's not. I don't think that is really it. Did I answer? Oh, the green movement. The green movement right now I think is close to moribund in the sense of where it exists on the political spectrum. But just as the opposition movement in Egypt was moribund until suddenly it appeared and took people by surprise, it's there. A good friend of mine in Iran who can't talk to me anymore because it's too dangerous told me at one point, he said, you know, it's really if they allowed a demonstration that was free where you could actually come out and express yourself, you'd have three million people on the streets of Tehran immediately. Do we, the West, have an influence on that? Yes, we do. But, you know, if we're kind to them, we say that these are the people we really admire and respect in Iran, that's the kiss of death because then they're seen as Western toadies and, you know, that undercuts whatever they want to do. We'd have no reason to attack them. I mean, why would we attack them? Basically, I think the idea that if we take a position in which we say people have a right to express their opinions and that that is something that we think is important and we're prepared to talk about that openly and say it and try to insist on it. And we put together, you know, a group of countries, coalition, et cetera, who really insist on that. That has a lot of effect in Iran. And that will work to the benefit of the Greens, the opposition movement, without actually coming out and saying so. The sanctions and all, I think, are not really, that's not really what they're about. And they do have secondary effects. But, frankly, the fact that the Greens are down right now is not because of sanctions and it's not because of anything we've done. It's because of the internal politics. And I think probably we do have to understand that there's only so much we can do. And in many cases, maybe the hardest thing for us to realize is we have no real control over what happens in Iran. And I think that's absolutely true. And it's very hard for an American government, at least, and I think for a lot of others, to acknowledge that we can't control events there. We wish we could, perhaps, but we can't. And that's why I said patience may be the virtue that we most need. But there was one more element to my question, and that is what do you see the effect of negotiations of the type that you were encouraging in terms of any kind of opening or developing of the democratic movement or the effect on the Green movement? 
I would I don't know and I think that the people who are would be doing the negotiations wouldn't know either on either side that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it if the if the negotiation is in fact producing something valuable greater security better understanding whatever it is that our objective is it's worth doing I don't think that it's going to be disastrous, for instance, to the Green Movement any more than what has already happened, nor do I think it will necessarily work to their benefit. It's worth doing in its own right. And if it is, I don't think we should shy away from it out of concern that forces that we don't fully understand and we certainly don't control are somehow going to be affected by that. I have uh, six people left on my list. So I'm not going to take any more. If we're lucky, we'll get to all six of you. Um, but I would ask you, please, to keep your questions short. Short, short, please. Take a leaf out of Chris's book. That was a lovely, short, and concise question. Jane. Jane, welcome to Chatham Hi, Jane. Um, I was intrigued by the point about that you made about the US possibly pulling back from Gulf security and from its bases there and so on. If that did happen, what would you see stepping in to fill the gap? Would you see potentially another state actor, some multilateral energy security force, and or would you see the Gulf Arab countries trying to indigenize Gulf security more? Mm -hmm. <coughs> Just from what I think, uh, with regards to Turkey, do you think Turkey is really emerging to fill the gap? Saying that in the context of Turkey having so much policy adventures. Stars with Israel now, very bad. And, uh, so, is Turkey in a position to play a leading role uh, uh, in the area and GCC? Mahju. Then, with the absence of Egypt and the uncertainty in the Arab world and the Arab side, and uh, the crisis between Turkey and Israel, what is the possibility to see kind of breaking between Iran and the United States? And do you think that? Uh, they may give concession to each other just to, you know, uh, kind of, you know, restore, just to calm down the situation and have kind of... Uh, Mahjib, could you just repeat the beginning of the question, because I... I this uncertainty in the, in the region yeah. and the absence of Egyptian role, mm -hmm. as uh, we used, used to have, do you think they may have kind of something, you know, just to calm down the, 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 the storm between both countries? Okay. Can you just speak up a little bit because it's yeah. all right. Um, so we um, would like to ask uh, what if the, the people in the um rise up against their um, government? Um, what would be the position of uh, the United States? Come on. This, this question of uh, what, you, what the U.S. believed or did not believe uh, with regard to Iraq's weapons uh, of mass destruction, uh, this ambiguity which uh, you seem to share uh, as well, what does that say to Iran now, maintaining this kind of ambiguity? Last gentleman at the end. I, I can't resist um, asking a quick question about your opening remarks about the other potential players. 
in particular China and India. And the context of this is not only the economic weight of China and India, but also the evidently rapidly developing uh, pipeline, uh, railway, and port links between China all the way through to Iran, Turkey's pipeline hub. And so the key question is, do you see any rapid economic focus, a change in economic focus um, in the Gulf and in Iran, away from them towards the west but towards the east. And the second implication of that, uh, the second question is, to what extent might that have security and stability implications, or do you think it might just remain in sort of the economic Okay. Okay. Um, if the United States pulls back, uh, who's going to fill the gap? Um, you know, 20 years ago, the United States had no presence in the region, and the British had left. And uh, you know, there was there were various things done to try to fill that gap diplomatically. But I think perhaps the gentleman's question up here could Iran and the uh, Arabs get together in some form wouldn't be a bad way to fill that gap. I you know to me the question that never gets asked about security we say we're there because of oil, but in reality. Every country in the region wants to sell its oil and will continue to want to sell its oil. So what are we really protecting? We're paying a tax on, at least the Americans are and the other people who have forces there, we're paying a tax on the oil that we get out. And I would argue that the taxes, uh, the Republicans are great for cutting taxes. Let's cut taxes, okay? Let's, let's <laughs> cut the tax on, on oil, uh, which involves a huge American presence there that I think is not really protecting anything very much. I mean, once we get out of the Iraqi situation and, and the Afghan as we pull back, I don't think, and again, I'm not arguing, Jane, that, I, that somehow we're going to just walk away and leave it empty. I think that's extremely unlikely. But you know, are we going to maintain Aludeid the way it is now with a massive base outside Doha that everybody wants to forget about or pretend it isn't there? I mean, it, I had the opportunity to, to visit it last year, and I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it is stunning to see just miles and miles and miles of aircraft lined up. They're fighting two wars from there. There's all kinds of control and uh, command and control that is operating there. Uh, do we really need something of that magnitude in the region, especially if we're not fighting wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? I think the answer is no. So I'm not arguing for a complete withdrawal. I'm arguing that we ought to reduce our presence, and that I think we will reduce our presence, and I would hope do it in a reasonable you know, and, and sensible way. Um, Jocelyn, with the question of, you know, is, is Turkey in a position to, to play a, a leading role? I'm not really proposing Turkey as the, taking over the politics. I'm not proposing a new Ottoman Empire in, in the region at all, <laughs> nor do I think the Turks are. I think what I'm talking about is, particularly with regard to Iran, Turkey can provide a very special role as an interlocutor between the United States and Iran that I think we should use. They have a way of dealing, you know, they, they have relations with Syria that are important and that could be used in terms of the, uh, the diplomatic endgame here after we see what happens to Assad and so forth. And I think they're, they're, they're a strong country. They're re remarkably stable, actually. They've got a foot in both the West and, and the East. 
Uh, they're a member of NATO. Uh, they've got a very active and vigorous economy that is growing. Um, they have things to offer. And all I'm arguing, and I think all anybody here that's spoken on Turkey, all anybody is, is suggesting is that they play more of a role, and we look to them to play more of a role than perhaps they have in the past. That's the most I would suggest. Um, with regard to Egypt and, and can it play a role, um, well, I think the answer is yes. And I think that, that in fact, the Arab world has suffered for the last at least 10 years from the absence of Egypt, that it was a robot, that it was, a, you know, it was a dying regime. And it was only interested in protecting itself and was not at all, it had no new ideas, and it just had a few things that it did well, uh, like beating people up and, and keeping people under control and um, that and a, a few other things that, that they were, and you know, the, the dealing with the Sinai and, and the like, but you know, I think Egypt has a real role to play in the Middle East, and I would qualify my comments about Turkey. And I'm no expert on Turkey, and I'm also no expert on Egypt. Is that if Egypt emerges out of this as a strengthened party, they might be an even more attractive model of intermediary or somebody who can play a role than, than Turkey. Basically, you've got that wonderful triangle of, you know, Egypt and Turkey and either Iran or Iraq, and I can imagine Iraq actually becoming more important as, as time goes on, uh, and that triangle might in fact be worth, worth something and looking at in the end. Um, with request, the, the question of what happens if the people in the Gulf states rise up, I think we've already seen an answer to that uh, with the Bahrain situation. Uh, the United States didn't come in and offer troops, and uh, they didn't do anything, basically. They, wanted, they just wanted it to go away. And I think that, that that's probably where they, would, where they would come out in any uh, new one. Um, Not from the, not from Washington. I mean, uh, I'm sure that lots of people in the Arab world believe that everything that happens is because the Americans either willed it or permitted it somehow. Um, I, frankly, as somebody who spent a lot of time in the White House, where we were constantly surprised by everything that took place, and, <laughs> and, and felt we had and felt we had no control over anything. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I understand the point. I understand the, the viewpoint, but, uh, but I don't share it, and I, I don't think that that was the case. Um, with regard to Iraqi WMD and what does that say about Iran, I think it says two things. One, that, uh, that a certain amount of ambiguity may be a good thing, but you can push it too far, you know? And so I think being a member of the IAEA, and having those inspectors there doing their job is one of the greatest protections that the West has and that Iran has. It protects Iran because they have people looking over their shoulder and saying, here's what they're actually doing, even if they have questions that are not fully understood. Uh, but I think also they, uh, you know, they, I think they know that if they started really going for a bomb in a major way, that uh, we'd Nobody knows 
what the what the uh, answer to that would be or what the results would would be the I don't know if we've got a minute or two yeah, I mean but that the whole question about I mean China and India and so forth I let me just say one thing that one of the other things that I didn't say about sanctions is that the you know, the West imposed sanctions, and the United States started early imposing sanctions on Iran on their um, oil production capacity and so forth. And Iran had some real opportunities to break those sanctions. There, you, there were oil, Western oil companies that were prepared to come in and do it, even though the U.S. was saying, don't do it. They were prepared to take their chances. Mm -hmm. You know what happened? The Iranians, instead of saying, hooray, come in, we'll give you a good deal, you know, what they did was just negotiate them to death until they finally gave up. They said it's not worth it to us to come in and pay the price with the Americans when we're not going to make a profit on this thing. And so the Iranians have been enforcing the sanctions themselves in, in, a, very, in a very peculiar way. And it's just a fact of life. Anyway, I think, I think the Chinese and the Indians are going to come up against the same problem, that basically their attempts to deal with Iran will be moderated by the fact that the Iranians are going to be suspicious. They're going to be, they take huge pride in their negotiating capabilities, which means of not getting a deal, you know, that you, you negotiate so hard and so long that in the end you don't get anything. And then take great pride in the fact of how tough you were. You know? <laughs> uh, but uh, actually it's a, Anyway, I, I won't go on. Uh, I, think, but I think the Chinese have already, they've already some indication that the Chinese that they've already begun to pull so. back uh, simply well, because they, they aren't making the kind of progress that they had hoped for. I was going to draw on many things. I was going to draw on a couple of um, experiences I had which actually relate to your uh, university, but I think perhaps illustrate uh, some of the points you were making. And um, one was actually on the anniversary, well, it was actually just after 9 11, and I was due to go up and give a talk at Columbia. And I remember calling up to Dick and, and yourself, Dick Bullitt, and they said, you know, business as usual, and off I went on the train in a very surreal moment, as to be said. Uh, New Yorkers have never been more friendly, I have to say, but uh, off we went after this great catastrophe. And uh, one of the interesting things for me at the time was that Dick and others were saying that, of course, everyone was trying to find out whether these hijackers were Shia. <laughs> and it was very interesting. And, of course, Dick and others said, no, no, the names are not Shia. Of course, it would have been very convenient and rather helpful if they'd all been Iranian. And they weren't, unfortunately, and it complicated matters. Um, <laughs> some six years later, I was back in Colombia, and uh, there, as Gary knows, I had a, at that time, was particularly anxious about the possibility of a military strike on Iran. Um, perhaps overly done, but, you know, Blair was in office at that time, so it was a bit more dangerous. <laughs> and uh, I remember talking to an Iranian, uh, he was actually working for... IRIB, and he came to me and he said, uh, you know, Dr. Ansari, we're all very anxious, we need to reduce tensions between Iran and the United States, it's all rather bad, and all this, that, and the other. And exasperated and somewhat, a little flippantly, I sort of turned to him and I said, well, you know, it could be helpful, it would be helpful if you said death to America a little less. And he looked at me aghast and he sort of said, but Dr. Ansari, it's part of our culture. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I just turned and shrugged and I said, well, I'm sorry, I can't help you. <laughs> so this is, you know, some of the problems that we're dealing with. And I think, you know, as, uh, as Gary has uh, well expressed, sometimes that equilibrium does not exist, unfortunately. And there are, I think, as Katrina quite rightly said, some structural, some systemic uh, reasons why we cannot seem to approach an agreement. And when one side or the other moves in a direction, there's always something, a bugbear in the system, so to speak, of not necessarily that 
disguised either that will come and disrupt it. And at the moment, uh, it seems to be that there is no movement uh, 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 whatsoever. In any case, let's not be pessimistic. Let's be optimistic as, as to the future. It's, uh, I would say, the greatest word as far as Iran is concerned that I probably overused the word is potential. And I like to think there's a huge amount of potential there still to be realized, and I look forward to hopefully trying to realize it. Well, it leaves us only to once again show our appreciation to Gary for a wonderful presentation. So, uh, once again, thank you very much. Thank you, Mark.